Welcome to the New Books Network. Why is there no academic freedom on university campuses in the Palestinian territories? Today's guest examines this question in the first empirical study of campus life under the Palestinian Authority and Hamas government. For years, anti-Zionist activists have accused Israel of undermining academic freedom and campus free speech in both Gaza and the West Bank. Carrie Nelson demonstrates that the major threats to academic freedom come from the Palestinians themselves, including from both the Palestinian Authority and from paramilitary and terrorist groups, Hamas most prominent among them. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. Subscribe to our series on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you find your podcasts. I'm pleased to welcome Carrie Nelson to the show today to talk about his recent book, Not in Kansas Anymore, Academic Freedom in Palestinian Universities. Hi, nice to, nice to talk with you. It's great to have you here, Carrie. I'll just let the audience know a little bit about you. Uh, Carrie Nelson is an American professor emeritus of English and Jubilee professor of liberal arts and sciences at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He's a past president of the American Association of University Professors. Carrie, from your vantage point as a professor and as president of the AAUP, give us the big picture of why academic freedom is important. Well, it's... um interesting that the fundamental definition of academic freedom, that it assures the right to speak and publish freely on the part of faculty members, and also the right students have to study uh, course, to take up courses of study uh, in their choice. Uh, And academic freedom applies to both teaching and research. The most relevant definitions were uh, formulated by the AEUP the same year the organization was founded in 1915. And that definition has largely been accepted throughout the world. Um, it's, it was the first major, there were some definitions in Germany before in the late 19th century, but that beginning of 20th century definition by the AEUP has sort of carried the day around the world. Now, what many people don't realize uh, is that the legal constraints on academic freedom do vary from country to country. The most famous example is uh, Germany, which makes Holocaust denial illegal. And there are several other European countries that take that same stand on claims of Holocaust denial. So there are some differences, but academic freedom is sort of the ground zero principle that governs higher education. And it also is a principle that is designed to apply not only to individual institutions, but to the way that faculty members and institutions interact across the world. So interestingly enough, uh, one of the things that the AAUP has insisted on um, is that conversations between faculty members at different institutions should be sustained even if the countries that the institutions are in are really pretty uh, pretty objectionable. Um, so, you know, if, if you happen to be in a dialogue with a faculty member in North Korea, you should be able to maintain that dialogue. Academic freedom should cover your right to interact. It's so it's really designed not just as a national policy, but as a policy that assures freedom of speech and interaction, at least within universities and between universities worldwide. Without that agreement, really, uh, free speech of any sort couldn't be sustained in the academy. So it's as basic a principle as you could look for. Okay. I didn't realize it covered that international aspect of it as well. Uh, so 
when does political action... That's, that's why, I mean, by the way, that's why the AEUP rejects all boycotts of universities, no matter what country they're in. So the AEUP objects to boycotts of Israeli universities, but it also objects to boycotts of all other universities as well. I mean, it was never tested, but you know, you, you could raise the question, um, should universities in Nazi Germany have been boycotted? Well, in effect, they were because there was eventually, you know, a complete economic and cultural boycott of Nazi Germany. But universities were never singled out. There was never an agreement that Nazi universities should be boycotted, even though in that case, it isn't clear they really were universities anymore. Um, they threw out Jews. They, you know, they totally uh, restricted speech. They weren't really honoring academic freedom. Uh, I don't think universities in Turkey at the moment uh, are able to honor academic freedom because of the uh, rules that the Erdogan government has imposed. But faculty members are still supposed to try to be able to have conversations with uh, 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 with their peer faculty members or students uh, in countries that are in you know bad shape. Yeah, that's that's very interesting and important to know. If we look at the other extreme, when would you say that political action protected by academic freedom can become a cover for incitement and terrorist recruitment? That's, that is an extremely interesting and very contentious uh, topic at the present time. Uh, maybe, maybe more so than it has certainly been within living memory. Um, I mean, there were, there were moments during the Vietnam War in the United States when there was, you know, impulse, was an impulse from some legislators to kind of shut down free speech. Of course, during the McCarthy era, uh, it happened continually. And actually, the worst restrictions on faculty speech occurred in the U.S. during World War I. Uh, that was a declared war. And uh, basically, there was a conviction that if you objected to the war as a faculty member, you were uh, guilty of treason. So that was that, that's the most extreme case, next most extreme, the McCarthy period. But we're having a pretty intense debate about it now. And um, one of the most interesting uh, examples of it is a a Zoom presentation that San Francisco State University uh, had intended to uh, present worldwide um, uh, in in April, just last month, that featured uh, Laila Kalad, the famous first female airplane hijacker um, who was involved in two hijackings in the 1970s. And Zoom ended up closing down that uh, presentation. Zoom decided that they were worried about violating the U.S. law, which prohibits giving material aid to terrorists. To terrorists, and she's um, still, you know, an active leader in the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which is a designated terrorist organization, and indeed. Uh, in the last few years has been receiving support from Iran. And so it's reviving its terrorist networks on the West Bank. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it really is a, a real present terrorist threat. So in the U.S., a lot of academic freedom advocates said the presentation has to go on. She has to be allowed to speak. On the other hand, it was an internationally advertised webinar. So people in the West Bank could sign in, uh, people in Syria perhaps could sign in if they can sign into anything. Um, so it was, and the, the reality of the threat of terrorism, certainly from the PFLP, varies from country to country. There's, there's no threat in this country um, from that terrorist group but there is a threat 
on the West Bank. So um, does, does the almost universal demand in this country that it should have been allowed to happen really apply when it's going to be internationally broadcast and available for people all across the world to participate? That question was never resolved. <laughs> it wasn't resolved in part because Zoom canceled it and so it became moot. But the question of whether academic freedom should be limited in that case still hung in the air. Now, it's interesting because the law in Britain says that you cannot allow a presentation on a campus that encourages participation in terrorism. So the, the, the law in Britain is even much clearer on that than it is in the United States. And I don't think an internet platform based in Britain would have been allowed to carry the event. So that's a, that's a really uh, interesting example of the way in which different contexts around the world really affect whether academic freedom can be limited by questions of security. And I think my view is that the Israelis would have been well within their rights to say, you know, no, we're going to block that Zoom conversation. We're not going to let uh, uh, Leila Khaled promote the PFLP in, in the West Bank or in Israel proper. It's a terrorist group. It's a, it represents an imminent danger um, to Israelis. Um, they were involved, the PFLP was involved in a murder as recently as 2019. Um, Israelis, I think, would, would be within their rights in, in blocking access and, in that case, limiting academic freedom, even though, in general, Israeli universities really honor academic freedom pretty much exactly the same way uh, we do in the United States and um, and in Europe. Well, you, you've made a clear point that a university is not an island. It, it exists within a society. So different societies have different ideas about what constitutes uh, academic freedom. But is it even reasonable to expe expect freedom of expression in a university when, as is the case in the territories under Palestinian control, those freedoms are not generally available to the public? Um, uh, no, I think you're right that the, the conditions for uh, freedom of speech in the culture uh, clearly limit what's going to happen in universities. The, the, the obvious example, I think, for the West Bank are the limitations on freedom of the press that the Palestinian Authority uh, imposes. And over the last couple of years, those limitations have been increased uh, because of new legislation that the, or new regulations that the Palestinian Authority disseminated that uh, put more severe restrictions on freedom of the press. So I think the, the model that I'm suggesting actually I think applies pretty much everywhere. That if press freedoms are restricted, if reporters can't say what they want in print, in interviews, then don't expect universities to be able to do so either. Uh, in most of Europe and the United States, you never really think about the relationship between freedom of the press and academic freedom because it's not a problem. But um, it is a problem on the West Bank, and the Palestinian Authority is uh, pretty unhappy with uh, criticism directed at it by the press. Uh, now, of course, um, Hamas on, in Gaza will make comments and there's really nothing the Palestinian Authority can do about it, but they do limit press freedom severe, pretty severely um, on the West Bank. And as a consequence, you get 
similar restrictions on college and university campuses. So in a way, the in terms of academic freedom, freedom of the press is sort of the canary in the coal mine. <laughs> That's your warning that academic freedom is going to be compromised. Now, that said, it's still a subject matter issue. In other words, if you're if you're in an accounting course in Birzeit University, you're, you're going to be able to say anything about accounting that you want. Um, if you're in a medical training program in a Palestinian university, you're going to be able to deal with the facts uh, of medical health. Indeed, I think uh, Palestinian faculty members are generally willing to be quite honest about the social implications of medical health issues. I mean, medicine is not just a biological, it's also um, a disease, it's not just a biological, it's also a social issue. It can be promoted by certain social conditions or limited by certain social conditions. And, you know, I've been in contact with Palestinian faculty members who are really very frank about that and frank about what they say and what they publish. Um, so, that's an area in which their academic freedom really obtains. Where you get into trouble is, in, is with politics and religion. Those are really the two broad domains where academic freedom gets restricted, not just on the West Bank by the Palestinian Authority, but in plenty of other countries as well, including uh, many countries in the Mideast where uh, freedom of expression regarding politics and religion, freedom to criticize the national government, freedom to take issues with the majority religion. Those are just freedoms that people really don't have, neither in the public domain uh, nor in, in universities. That's always the test. The, I have several times um, offered what I consider to be sort of the ultimate political test for academic freedom for faculty members, which is to say, does a faculty member have the right to say that his or her own country does not have the moral legitimacy to sustain itself? And that, <laughs> that you can get into trouble for that in a lot of places, uh, but I think, uh, a faculty member in Israel proper can say that, in my view. Uh, I also think that, you know, for that statement to be fair, it has to be reparable. That is, a country has to be able to do something to recover its moral legitimacy, um, which I certainly believe, if you think Israel's moral legitimacy is compromised by some of its, by some of its government policies, it should be possible to change those policies and regain that moral legitimacy. If you say it can't, then you really say that the founding of the country was illegitimate. And in my view, that's not just anti-Zionism, it's anti-Semitism. You know, when you speak about uh, the risk of criticizing the government in the Palestinian territories, you couldn't be more topical because as we speak, there's a journalist in jail begging to get out. And the reason he is being detained is that he insulted Abbas, the <laughs> head of the Palestinian Authority. So so who is responsible? That, that, that's, been a, that's been a regular um, available legal constraint uh, on the West Bank for some time. It's not always applied. It, it seems to be rather arbitrarily applied, but th that journalist is not the first one um, to get into trouble that for something that you know any Israeli uh, would be surprised you couldn't do, that you could say that you couldn't insult Netanyahu or that in the US you couldn't insult or criticize the US president. I mean, those are just, that's, that's like daily bread and butter, right? To be able to do that. Well, that's what journalists do, and also the very notion of insulting as being a, a legal term, because what is insulting to 
you and me might be very different from what's insulting to uh, an aged authoritarian leader <laughs> who's worried about his legacy. Uh, so, so one of the complaints about um, the way the Palestinian Authority is applying uh, that and similar legal restraints is that it's so vague what would count as an insult that you right. really can't even tell how you should self-censor. There's what, what can you say or not say to be safe in not running afoul of the law? Well, there really is no way of predicting. Uh, and so the, the level of self-censorship that's required when freedom of speech is not only restricted, but restricted in a completely vague and imprecise and unclear way, the level of self-restraint is really total. And, and who is responsible for the restriction of freedom of expression in the Palestinian territories? Would you say it's Israel, as some people say? No, I don't, don't think Israel has a major impact on uh, freedom of expression on the West Bank. Sometimes, it did, of course, historically, uh, during the first intifada, um, Israel was worried about, uh, an, you know, a, a, um, a complete West Bank insurrection and widespread violence. And so Israel um, closed down universities for periods of time and uh, otherwise um, tried to, you know, officially limited the right to hold classes off campus, although it never actually stopped them. So historically, sometimes Israel has uh, intervened to restrict uh, academic freedom on the West Bank. But uh, once the Oslo Accords took effect, that ended. And then since then, gradually, uh, the Palestinian authorities has instituted various restraints. That said, um, in a way, the most severe chilling effect comes not from the Palestinian authorities' sort of legal or quasi-legal restraints. It really comes from other groups uh, that instill a climate of fear. Um, so uh, when, a, when a Palestinian student arrives for the first semester as a freshman uh, on a campus like Bir Zeit uh, or An Najah University, that student will be recruited by a series of paramilitary or terrorist groups, uh, however you want to classify Hamas um, and other groups. That student will actually be given brochures Colorful, colorful brochures, uh, well-produced brochures that promote a given um, political slash terrorist group on campus. One of the things those brochures typically do is celebrate the student martyrs from those campuses. Uh, that is, people who have died, students who have died uh, because of their direct involvement in terrorist attacks and so forth. Um, and every, on a major campus like Birzeit, on Najah, uh, basically every influential political group will have cadres of students who try to enforce on others their particular vision of what is acceptable or not acceptable in the way of political and religious groups. They administer beatings, they threaten people. They've certainly threatened and carried out uh, acts of violence against faculty members and administrators in addition to students. So those are, those represent real risks on Palestinian campuses. Those uh, activist cells uh, represent a real threat to, to opponents of any given political position. And, and it's very hard to avoid identifying with one group or another. Even faculty members end up allying themselves uh, with one group or another. Um, and they try, to, they try to enforce their point of view by threatening. 
others, even with physical abuse. So that has a a huge chilling effect. Needless to say, if you feel that you can be beaten or even have your life threatened, that's a huge restraint on your freedom of speech. I mean, um, how many of us, how many of us that don't face threats like that believe that we could stand up to them if we faced them in our own countries? We had the honor of uh, interviewing one courageous person, uh, Mohammed Dajani Daoudi. Ah, he, yes. he was on this podcast. He's a, a former Al-Quds University professor and peace activist who paid a very high price for his independent thinking. Tell us what happened to him after he took a, a group of Palestinian students to visit Auschwitz and the death camps of Europe. Yeah, I spent a, a long day with um, uh, Mohammed uh, a couple of years ago. We sat in a, in a Jerusalem cafe um, through most of the day talking. And he talked you know, quite a bit about his experience when he took those students to Auschwitz. 29, I think, students from Al-Quds went with him to Auschwitz. And uh, the fact of the trip was publicized beforehand, uh, widely publicized uh, in the West Bank. And as a result, he received some threats before he took the trip. Uh, And actually, he thought it wasn't an official Al-Quds trip, but he thought that uh, the university had nonetheless approved it. Once all of the... uh, complaints about it and the threats about it surfaced, the university said, no, it had never approved it. <laughs> it's, you know, it's Dejani's responsibility purely on his own. So he was kind of left hanging out there, but he still felt that it was important for Palestinian students to get a sense of the transformative events in Jewish history. And few could rise to the to the powerful significance of the Holocaust. So he took this, he took that small group of students there. Meanwhile, um, his secretary notified him while he was at Auschwitz with the students that warnings came in that his life would be in danger if he returned to the West Bank, returned to Al-Quds University once the trip was over. And some people came into the secretary's office, some students came in and trashed the office while he was um, in Auschwitz. So she had a, you know, a pretty material warning that they were serious, but he returned. um, And uh, a couple of things happened. One, um, the faculty union at Al-Quds declined to support him, declined to defend uh, his academic freedom right uh, to take take students on a trip. And then, most dramatically, in the way he described it to me, uh, a a student group uh, instructed um, by a terrorist or paramilitary group poured a chemical into all of the space the, um, the spaces between the metal parts of his car. And it was a chemical designed to burst into flame when the, car was, when the car engine was turned on and began to heat up. So it was, he feels strongly that it was an assassination attempt. What actually happened is that there was an unseasonable hot day and the car burst into flame while it was sitting, sitting on the street. So the car was incinerated but he himself um, wasn't killed. So he decided to resign from the university basically as a way of triggering support from the institution. When he resigned, Al-Qud said, great, you're gone. Rather than supporting his academic freedom, they eagerly embraced his departure. Um, He then uh, became... uh, a member of a think tank in Washington, D.C. Uh, he returns to at least uh, Jerusalem from time to time, and he would like to set up uh, an interfaith uh, program 
about reconciliation uh, somewhere uh, in Israel um, or perhaps uh, perhaps in East Jerusalem hasn't happened, but he's still trying to do it. But um, I think I don't think most of us think that the price for taking students to Auschwitz should be assassination. Yeah, <laughs> Carrie, you know your uh, academic colleagues intimately. Uh, and over a long period of time. Can you explain to us why academics and others who support uh, BDS, the anti-Israel boycott movement, why do they deny agency to the Palestinians and fail to hold them responsible for what happens on their university campuses? Well, there's a, there's a very basic dynamic, um, especially in left politics, that dynamic long predates Israel. It, there's a long history for it. And that's when uh, people seek out a perfect victim and a perfect perpetrator. They, there's a desire to have pure victims and pure perpetrators. And as I said, that certainly predates um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but it's now found a new focus over the last uh, several decades on Israel. And therefore, at least for some constituencies on the left, the Palestinians are a pure victim. The Israelis are a pure aggressor. And pure victims in this model have no agency. There's really nothing they can do uh, to affect their situation. It's, it's a completely delusional model, but I would have to say that I understand that because uh, I accepted it for a period of time, uh, namely uh, in the late 60s and early 70s during the Vietnam War, I thought of the North Vietnamese as totally innocent. And I thought of the U.S. as monstrous aggressors in the context of Vietnam. Now, I still think that the U.S. aggression was completely unwarranted and immoral, but I no longer think of the North Vietnamese as pure, innocent victims without agency. Um, at the time, I admired Susan Sontag, the American cultural critic, uh, and she wrote an essay, uh, Trip to Hanoi, that also characterized the North Vietnamese as totally innocent, incapable of no malice, incapable of no real aggression. And my major field is poetry. There was quite a bit of poetry at the time that treated the North Vietnamese the same way. Anyway, I accepted the model. <laughs> and I think I was- You were young. Yes, yeah, it's true. No, I'm no longer young. So I, I've, I've seen it in action and I lived through it in that way. And because of it, uh, I can recognize the fantasy of a completely innocent Palestinian people. They're people, they're not innocent. The Israelis aren't innocent. Nobody's innocent. <laughs> no people is purely innocent. Um, so in any case, I think that, that particular dichotomy uh, has a lot of influence on the left, and uh, it acquires a lot of useful idiots in its wake. Did your uh, research shed any light on why normalization is a dirty word, even treasonous, among Palestinians who nevertheless claim they want to live in peace side by side with Israel? Well, what, part of what's happened is that um, a couple of terms have sort of coalesced and combined in West Bank political culture. So normalization, which can mean nothing more than being willing to talk with Israelis, or being willing to meet with them to discuss routes toward peace um, becomes fused with collaboration. So people who, Palestinians who just have relationships with Israelis can be subject to threats and can be treated as uh, collaborators. People who are guilty of treason 
by talking with Israelis. Um, that's a, and that obtains not just on the West Bank, but that anti-normalization model uh, has, has increasing influence in the West as well. It's, it's what is used to try to block uh, Zionist speakers from talking on campus. Now, of course, there, there, are, no, there are no real assassination attempts uh, here in the U.S. based on that, but people's lives can be threatened based on the anti-normalization model on the West Bank. And indeed, some groups that foster reconciliation efforts between Israelis and Palestinians keep those efforts totally confidential. The names of Palestinians who participate in them are not public. The existence of reconciliation programs themselves, reconciliation between Palestinians and Israelis, are sometimes kept completely secret for fear that the Palestinians who participate uh, will, will have their lives put in danger. So uh, if anything, that anti-normalization agenda has intensified over, since the, during the new millennium. It's become, it's become a threat to peace. And I think there's a recognition for those who don't want peace that when people talk to one another, they, to some degree, make peace more possible. They right. come to understand their own narratives. They come to understand the histories that, uh, that, they, that they have as members of a, a particular people. And so some level of normalization is necessary for a peace process to continue. You have to understand the other's point of view. You have to respect the other's point of view. You don't have to adopt their narrative. You can think their narrative is false, but you have to know where they're coming from. And that's what normalization politically can help foster. Um, so, uh, but it's become a kind of hallmark for anti-Zionism worldwide uh, to embrace the, the anti-normalization agenda. It's really hugely destructive. Some people think it's the single most destructive cultural force in the area. Your, your book focuses on universities, which are supposed to be centers of scholarship uh, and inquiry. So uh, what would you say is the impact of the suppression of ideas and political intimidation on scholarly creativity? Have any world-class research uh, been produced in Palestinian universities? Uh, well, um, for a and, long, for and many my, years. My question has a second part I'd like you sure. to, to consider. How does the situation in Palestinian universities compare with other universities under authoritarian rule but without occupation? Ah, uh, well... In many ways, the situation in Palestinian universities, to take that part of the question first, is really qu in quite comparable to that in some authoritarian countries. Although uh, things can get in some ways worse. So I think in Turkey at this point, uh, faculty members are expected not just not to speak against the government, but to accurate, but to you know, actually reproduce the government's official point of view. In other words, faculty members in Turkey are expected to be spokespeople for the government, which is just astonishing. In a Palestinian university, if you know, if you're if you're you know, teaching an accounting course and you just never say anything about the government, you're okay. Uh, you just talk about accounting, and that's it. You won't be expected to be a spokesperson. So. In that, in that respect, things in some authoritarian societies can be even worse, where faculty members have to be uh, government parrots. That doesn't quite happen. On the other hand, the physical threats that obtain on Palestinian campuses don't exist in some other authoritarian countries because the repression of speech is so complete that no, you know, no physical threats really have to obtain anymore because the arrest systems in some countries and the dismissal systems 
In Turkey, faculty members who, who disagree with the government will lose their jobs and can it th be thrown in jail. Um, you won't find a lot of um, faculty disagreement about government policy in China. Um, so there are other repressive countries where things can be a little bit different. But what's distinctive about the West Bank in part are the real physical threats that come from competing paramilitary groups operating in the same social and political space. That's, you know, the uh, existence of the PFLP, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, uh, and indeed uh, Fatah organized uh, paramilitary groups. All of that makes the West Bank really quite unique. Those competing politically aggressive, violent groups. And there's not just one government exercising repression of speech. It's all of these groups in interaction that create an atmosphere that's very difficult to read in such a way to sustain your safety. And I don't believe that uh, the euphemism student act Activism uh, quite expresses what you're describing. They're not no, student I mean, I, activists. I, I think one of the things that uh, I try to point out in the book in, in some detail, which people in the West certainly don't realize, uh, I don't know, I suspect Israelis must realize that although there aren't a lot of Israelis who count themselves as experts in Palestinian higher education. But in the West, it's typically not recognized that during the Second Intifada, there were quite a few uh, Palestinian students who actually participated in suicide bombings, um, sometimes while they were students. Sometimes they left school to be suicide bombers. They decided to take up suicide bombing as their career, a temporary career, of course, unless they just organized it, which many did, rather than actually being the bombers themselves. Students were checking out the locations. Students were helping to obtain explosives for others. Students were uh, uh, providing escape routes for people who oversaw the explosions. There was a wide variety of student involvement uh, in the suicide bombing period. And uh, that's, I mean, there's nothing, it, it's hard to find something comparable in any other universities in the world. Um, then when the suicide bombings gradually stopped, uh, partly, of course, because of the security barrier that, uh, that Israel built, um, and gradually um, groups like Hamas operating on the West Bank shifted from suicide bombings to conventional bombings. So Hamas was organizing groups, including student cells, um, to gather explosive materials, build explosives, and actually set them in places. And uh, the Israeli security services have been very good so far in actually uh, uh, surveilling uh, student activities enough to catch those groups before they actually carried out uh, a bombing. But it's, it's one successful student-organized bombing would totally seriously change the relationship with Palestinian universities and indeed Israel's relationship with the West Bank. It's been, it's been a near thing. Um, and uh, the interdiction of those student terrorist cells has been a continual feature of Israeli uh, security forces work. Thank God. But, you know, uh, they only have to succeed once before they would change the dynamic really substantially. So, you know, I, I, the title of the book, Not in Kansas Anymore, reflects that difference and tries to tell people in the West, when you move from the University of Kansas to Birzeit University or An-Najah University or Al-Quds University, 
you're not in Kansas anymore. And so people tend here to think that aligning with a, even with Hamas is like joining the campus Republican Party on a U.S. campus, <laughs> but it ain't. Um, joining a Hamas terrorist cell is not the same as you know joining a Republican debating group uh, at the University of Illinois. So that, and, that, and here's a good story that illustrates it. Uh, tell us about the Christmas tree hung with pictures of terrorists uh, that was erected uh, on the Al-Quds campus in a ceremony with the Mufti of Bethlehem and the Greek Orthodox Archbishop. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the celebrations of terrorists, including portraits of terrorists, um, varieties of those celebrations have occurred regularly on several Palestinian campuses. But I include a photograph of that uh, Christmas tree with the religious leaders standing next to it in the book uh, because it's, it's such a disorienting image. For one thing, uh, people don't imagine that there are... Uh, that terrorists are treated like saints on Palestinian campuses not just heroes, but something even greater. Um, and associating with them with Christmas, of course, suggests that um, even terrorists really are victims, right? They're heroic victims, not perpetrators. And that seems bizarre. But then to add to it the willingness of major religious leaders to join in those celebrations, and, and I think... Um, you're very far from Kansas indeed at that point. <laughs> really, um, really. It was shocking to see that picture. Uh, uh, our listeners probably remember the Charlie Hebdo massacre and the carnage that followed the publication of cartoons that offended the uh, Islamist murderers. Um, what happened to the professor of cultural studies at Birzeit University who posted an Islamic Superman cartoon on his office door. Right. I think he was being sort of playful. Um, and uh, he supplied different, uh, you know, different uh, dialogue to the cartoon. Um, the, the university condemned him. Uh, the images were taken down. Uh, he ended up having to stop teaching. Um, the... That's just, you know, that was a really clear example that um, not just politics, but also religion can be a red line um, in some societies. Of course, historically in the West, if you go back, um, you know, a century or so or a couple centuries, uh, you'll find that anti-Christian sentiment uh, could get you into more than a little trouble as well uh, across Europe. So, you know, we have historically experiences of um, religion becoming so thoroughly identified and connected with state power that enforcement of heresy puts people's lives at risk. But uh, the, the the sensitivity over religious issues can be quite strong on the West Bank and the willingness of student groups to be offended, scandalized by, worst of all, religious sense of humor or a sense of humor as it seems to uh, threaten the sanctity of religious belief. Um, you know, that is another red line on the West Bank. And uh, of course, you know, West Bank faculty members who get their Palestinian faculty members who have PhDs got their PhDs elsewhere. Palestinian universities now offer master's degrees in many areas, but they don't offer PhDs. So if you want that advanced uh, doctoral education, you're going to travel elsewhere to get it, which means that those faculty members get exposed to liberal ideas that are not accepted, uh, obviously, in Gaza or the West Bank. And they come back with a different view about academic freedom, uh, with a different, different view about religion, with the, with the notion that religion can be mocked, uh, that religion can be criticized, that it's, that it's available uh, to a, 
the full range of different forms of expression. And um, they can get into real trouble about it uh, in societies like that on the West Bank, where that kind of tolerance um, for uh, even anti-religious sentiment just doesn't much obtain. We're talking about college, university, young people. What, what impact would you say the glorification of violence has on young university students? Well, I think if they're exposed to one faculty member who manages to glorify violence, um, maybe the other values can prevent them from being seduced. The problem comes when the campus as a whole is frequently an environment that reinforces violence. So, um, you know, An-Najah University has more than once um, had public exhibits set up that glorified violence. The most famous one at An-Najah was a public exhibit um, that sort of recreated the Sabaro pizza um, suicide bombing in Israel. So they reproduced the, the front of the, uh, the, the pizza restaurant. And then inside, uh, there were uh, recreations of the bombing. Body parts, not real body parts, but, but imitation body parts spread around. Uh, fake blood spread around. And this wasn't a protest against the suicide bombing. This was a celebration of it. That's just one example of something that helps create an environment in which violence of the worst kind is glorified and in which students accept that that glorification is part of their whole social milieu. So then you add to that um, the political groups or paramilitary groups on campus that endorse violence the celebrations at Christmas time and elsewhere of suicide bombers, uh, the relentless uh, advocacy for anti-normalization. You put all of that together, and it's those combination of effects that creates an atmosphere that can lead some students, many students, to believe that violence is not only acceptable, but desirable, that it's the only route um, that they have to achieve their political desires. And these are the future leaders of the Palestinian culture. They're the ones going to university. Now, some American uh, colleges have programs, joint programs at Palestinian universities. So when a, a U.S. college like Bard and San Francisco State has a joint program with universities, with cultures that you just described, aren't they providing them with cover, with a veneer of legitimacy? I think to some degree they are. The programs aren't all the same. Um, I have exactly zero confidence in any program that San Francisco State University initiates with a Palestinian campus. And that's because there has been such a long-time culture of anti-Zionism and indeed of anti-Semitism on the SFU campus that you, you really cannot uh, imagine that uh, liberal political beliefs and academic freedom are going to be fostered by an SFSU program. On the other hand, I think the Bard program has probably had a positive benefit. Um, I've had some contact with uh, people who've taught in it. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing that can happen on a campus, you get a small class together, the faculty member trusts the students, the students trust the faculty member, the confidentiality of that small class is maintained. You can get some politically more liberal and open conversations in that small setting. Now you have 50 students in the class uh, in a Palestinian university, I wouldn't take the chance. But you have, you know, 
six or eight students in a seminar. I think you, some faculty members, including those in the BARD program, have been able to get away with uh, a more open kind of political conversation in very small groups. If you have someone that's going to report you, then you, you know, you got a problem. But I think some of those classes have been productive. So I think there are differences to be made. Now, on the other hand, I don't think it is really acceptable to provide financial support for a Palestinian university unless you know how the money is going to be spent, unless you know that, um, that it, it's only activities that promote uh, academic freedom are going to be supported. Uh, again, because, because I believe very much in not boycotting any universities, I don't advocate boycotting Palestinian universities. But there are uh, European uh, NGOs that um, actually have financial relationships with Palestinian universities in Gaza, where there is no trace of academic freedom whatsoever. I mean, there is just um, the Islamic University of Gaza actually has Islamism as its central ideological commitment. You are supposed to teach everything at Islamic University of Gaza from an Islamist perspective. Now, how you teach chemistry or physics from an Islamist perspective, I haven't the faintest idea. I, I can't come up with anything other than supporting the history of Islamic advances in science. Okay, that's, you know, that, uh, that's a fine. But what else you would do to match uh, the university's official uh, mission statement, I haven't the faintest idea. But I do know what happens in other kinds of classrooms um, because there have been some people who've audited those cor courses and, and seen what, um, you know, what teaching from an Islamist perspective uh, can amount to. You know, my favorite example is when a, a Danish faculty member intended, uh, attended a literature, audited a literature class at Islamic University of Gaza, and they were actually uh, reading Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter and talking about it. And um, the, the uh, teacher, uh, Mr. Muhammad, asked his students, uh, why, is, um, why is Islam so much more humane um, than religions in the West? How would we handle um, uh, Hester's adultery? And the students didn't know the answer. So he said, well, we're much more humane because rather than make her wear a scarlet letter, we would just stone her to death. <laughs> and that's much kinder. So there at least is a glimpse of what it means to teach from um, an Islamist, not just Islamic, but Islamist really, vantage point. And... Uh, uh, one doesn't feel so good about what those students would experience. But it is possible that exchange programs that give Palestinian students contact with American faculty could open their eyes somewhat, depending upon who the, pro who the teachers are, depending upon what the programs are like. But, you know, donating money to them, I think, unless you really can be confident about what the university's mission is, um, is, I think, counterproductive. Finally, uh, and this may be a question that doesn't have an answer, but I'd like you to address it if you can. What would actually be required to make Palestinian universities protected spaces of education rather than what they are now, institutions for the uh, radicalization of students? Well, nothing could be done uh, within the culture as it exists now on the West Bank. And so long as Hamas is in power in Gaza, there really is no hope. There is, there is no way of reforming an educational institution in Gaza. There, there, it's, it's a completely repressive, restrictive regime. Um, 
everyone is put in physical danger based on points of view that are unacceptable. It's, it's not going to happen. And on the West Bank, so long as competing violent terrorist groups actually function in on the West Bank, I don't think you're going to have true academic freedom in Palestinian universities. In other words, I just don't see independent changes that Palestinian higher education can make to repair itself when the culture as a whole moves, moves in the opposite direction. Okay, that's honest, if not optimistic. Uh, Carrie, you've been very generous with your time. I want to thank you for your important work and for coming on the show today. I appreciate the opportunity. It's been very nice to speak with you. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. <laughs>